But you can tell, you can narrate the story, you know, you can do the story of theology that this series of things have happened, you know, Constantine uh, gives us the Constantinian shift, Augustine, and go on right through. And what you're always doing, though, is you're, and, and, and not to deny the, the his, history of that or in to say, say that that's not true, but in the process, what you're doing is you're always putting these obstacles in place and creating a kind of absence or lack. Uh, and then you, then I did the same thing. With you can do it with uh, human development. You can do it with philosophy. the The point is the lack in human life in our own development often becomes the power that controls and orders life. And what is ultimately lacking is not named in other words and that was what i never well i did say it eventually and that that what you're lacking what you're missing is uh life itself is uh and not the life as we would have it in an understanding of human desire um so theology and philosophy i think repeat the story of the missing piece. I told the Shell Silverstein's story of the missing piece, you know, the little circle with the slice cut out. He's continually rolling along looking for the missing piece. And, and of course, when he finds it, it clogs everything up. It clogs his life up uh, so that he can't sing and he can't interact. Um, the You could do the same thing, and I... I this is what we, those of you who have done philosophy with me, this is what you can do with the story of philosophy. And in fact, this is the story of philosophy, I think, up to a postmodern period. That when you talk about metaphysics, uh, what metaphysics is positing is that there's some gap between ourselves and reality, or uh, that. There's a, a fundamental reality, an idea like essence, but that essence is in some way at a remove. It's you know in the Platonic forms, or in uh, some way it is uh, in deep. You know, if you think of uh, uh, Descartes or even of Anselm, what they're describing is a journey inward to attain an essence. Uh, so I don't know if you've studied post-modern thought or post-modern philosophy. This is all that they're saying. They're saying, oh, look, the same thing is happening over and over again. Uh, now, what a lot of postmodern thinkers are saying is, okay, so human thinking is always of this shape that I've just described to you. Um they, we just have to live in that gap. We have to inhabit that uh, absence. Um, but what I think, uh, obviously we need to go beyond that. We need to say, no, Christianity is not... There are Christian theologians, by the way, who just live in the gap. Um, that uh, what postmodern theology is doing is acknowledging the story that I did but to say that that's all there is. Postmodernism identifies the gap. But you understand that in talking about this thing, we're actually talking about 
that the whole construct is built around the absence or the gap. The whole thing, you know, it's not that, oh, if we could just leap over the gap, or if we could just resolve these two things, that we would come to the truth, but rather the whole construct would be undone. Include up to and including the idea, you know, in uh, Romans 7, when Paul is talking about the law and uh, the eye, you know, if you could resolve those two things, what Paul is picturing is in fact a kind of false construct that would in reality be undone, the, the subject would be undone, if you could come to some sort of, uh, you know, if the agonistic struggle's not there, if uh, in terms of the roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, when Wiley Coyote catches the roadrunner, there's nothing left. There's no drive left. I think the, the key person in this, and I still want to do a, a bit of a negative moment here, uh, is with Thomas Aquinas. Um, because we have to ask ourselves, what is the role of Christ? What is the role of salvation? What does it mean to read the New Testament? That's really what I'm aiming at here in this. This is kind of an introduction. Why read the Bible? I'm afraid that the reason that we read the Bible and the way that we do salvation is very much we're just going to have Jesus fill the gap. That he's just going to be, uh, you know, uh, one more product that he's going to hold out fullness in some way. Um, is that the role of Christ, or is in fact the role of Christ to reveal the deception of this entire construct and undo it? Thomas Aquinas' uh, privileges, and of course Aquinas is the one who fuses two forms of thinking, you know, so Anselm is often called the father of scholasticism, but Aquinas then is also pictured as one of the fathers of scholasticism. But what does Thomas Aquinas, what two forms of thought does he fuse? Or what kinds of things? I thought this was... <laughs> Uh, a long time. Okay. <laughs> the analogy of being, so he's saying that all, all of human material reality cannot in any way encompass uh, divine knowing or divine reality. Why so? Because he's, his understanding of God is from where? Because that's Anselm. Aristotle. Aristotle. So it's Aristotle who gives us the unmoved mover, right? That it's Aristotle who pictures the concentric rings and, you know, that, that God is at the center. And, of course, uh, there's no way of penetrating to the unmoved mover through that which moves. Uh you know, you've heard me do the whole thing. What does the unmoved mover think about? Well, the unmoved mover cannot think about any changing thing because that would mean that he himself were changing. 
this all sounds like this. This sounds like oh, what, what's all this philosophical? Why are we talking about all this bunk? Well, because this is precisely what the early church began to talk about and struggle with, and this is what many of the early church councils were struggling to overcome. They had incorporated an Aristotelian notion of God. Not to say that they did this whole cloth, but they're attempting then to, in some way, bring together Aristotelian notions of who God is and biblical notions of who God is. And so what does the unmoved mover think about? He only can think about the one unmoving thing, which is himself. If he thought about... Go ahead, say it, Sherry. If the grand narcissist... Yes. (laughs) So, um, if that is your picture of God, and I'm not saying that Aquinas necessarily... uh, that that completely controlled it, but it certainly shaped his thinking. And so I always, uh, the analogy of being is, I think, built upon that notion that God can only be known analogously through the material world or through language and even through Christ inasmuch as Christ is incarnate because God is ultimately absolutely transcendent. And the way then in which you come to an understanding of God is through uh, the beatific vision, which actually begins, you know, this is really posited by Augustine in his fusion of Neoplatonism, but Aquinas will develop it. And there is the privileging then, an overt privileging of sight, I mean in the very form, the beatific vision. But then the question becomes, is this vision uh, uh, in some way more powerful than faith itself? And if that's the case, isn't it true then that Jesus continually beholds the Father in his essence so that Christ, in fact, does not have faith in God as he always has the beatific vision? Now, I've just done a little thing here to you that if you believe what I just said, I'm afraid I've stolen the New Testament from you. Uh, And it needs correction, but it's going to take uh, a huge shift. I don't think it's a, 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 you know, it's not a hard thing to locate what I've done. Um, Clearly what Thomas is doing, he's locating the biblical knowing Within the and this is the whole history of philosophy, you know, the Plato's notion of the mind's eye, uh, that all of human knowing is pictured as grasping things visually, and this is precisely what is the way that faith and reason are contrasted. Isn't reason an immediate grasping of things? Whereas faith in some way falls short of reason. And reason then, you know, this is Francis Bacon's notion of that reason is power, that knowing is power, uh, and that uh, ultimately faith falls short of reason. And of course, historically then, reason is preferred over faith. 
Tell me what I did that was wrong. Okay, one, step one is there is the presumption that we have access to a knowing or a reason that is not itself grounded in a worldview, a faith system. I think that's a false thing. What, what else have I done that, or that Aquinas did that in fact is, I think, mistaken? It's a very basic thing. It's perhaps the most, and this this is where you may disagree with me, because you may have not heard this before if you've never taken any classes with me or done much reading. I'm sorry. That uh, I'm using the word faith in the way that we often use it, um, and. Uh, the way that I've just done it, I've said Jesus doesn't have faith because he continually beholds God. He does not require faith. Uh, that Jesus had access to immediate sight of God. And so Christian faith is often pictured then uh, to be faith in Christ, a kind of objectified faith in Christ, rather than the subjective faith of Christ. So the word is pistis Christu. And the question is, how do we translate that? How do we understand that? Is Christ the object of faith in much the way that the God the Father is the object of Jesus' beatific vision? See, that's really what's happening. We behold Christ... Can you go back and talk more about beatific vision and what... I uh, what I think beatific vision means is that it is then uh, the point at which we have an immediate oneness or unity, uh, a face-to-face representation, a melding with God, a being you know an immediate. If you think of it in uh, a kind of um, terms of mysticism I think that it is uh, similar to Hindu or Buddhist notions of being united with being made one with the one so the beatific vision something very much on that order is in present in both Hinduism Buddhism and in Sunni Islam so pursuit of that vision it's like pursuing the peace to fill the gap that's what we yes I'd say, I'm saying it's one more thing that we don't have it. We don't have access to God. God is removed from us. And what all of Christianity is reduced down to is this continual notion that in some way we do not have direct access to the essence of God because that essence is removed from us and the way that we would get it and, you know, there's arguments even in Catholicism or in church history, was the beatific vision something that a living individual could have and that most people would say, yes, the saints, you know, that they all had, they beheld God in his essence and so had the direct access to, to God in a way that others did not. But the point is, yes, that it's just positing the gap once again, a gap that's always there, I think, as long as we are 
working within a visual frame of reference. Remember last time that I, I described human desire in terms of the way that John does it, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. So that we can describe the way of knowing here as on the order of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in which the knowing is, uh, you know, it's arbitrated by the individual. Whereas the alternative to that was the way in which they knew God prior to the fall. How do we know, and that, this is the big question, because that's really what we're discussing. Why do we read the Bible? Why, what is salvation? What, you know, these basic issues, do they pertain simply to our ethics? Do they pertain simply to the human heart? Or do they pertain to everything about us, including the very systems of the way in which we apprehend the world? Is our problem the world in which we inhabit? And that's the picture in John, that the, the, the world is constituted as a world of darkness. And that what needs to happen is that we, in fact, that world, one world is undone for us, and we enter into an alternative world. It's holistic. It's everything. There's nothing that's unleft, left untouched. And so I'm afraid that what happens in a Thomistic system, in scholasticism, I mean, just think the very name of it, is they're fusing a Greek philosophical form of thought, a Greek worldview, with a Christian understanding. Now again, in that then, they're, they're creating a system that is built on a gap. They're creating a system that's metaphysical. And the way that I'm describing metaphysics, or not just me, the way that metaphysics is understood, is that, oh, well, that's the whole system. There is always this sense in which this world, the phenomenal reality of this world in some way, leaves us short of the essence of things. You know, the prime example of this is Immanuel Kant. I'm sorry the philosophy almost becomes necessary. But what philosophy does for us is it's sort of a more sophisticated illustration of Shel Silverstein's children's story. <laughs> but the philosophers have articulated the problem. And so in a Kantian philosophical system, there is the noumena, things in themselves, and there's the phenomena, and you cannot get to things in themselves in and through the phenomenal world. The noumena is always withheld. Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel comes along and says, yes, that's true, and that's the tension in which we live, but that's not a problem. That is the way in which the world is constituted for us. Now, Hegel is the genius in all of this, and we all live in a kind of Hegelian. This, this directly pertains to reading the Bible, by the way, because higher critical or biblical criticism, as we have it in the modern period, develops with notions of a Hegelian dialectic controlling the whole enterprise. So even the conservative historical critical method is one that develops with the, the notion that the word of God then is given to us in and through a historical circumstance that is described in terms of a dialectic. So when I say Hegel, even if you don't know who that is or what he said, uh, much of uh, biblical scholarship is 
has arisen in a philosophical environment that was defined by Hegel. And all Hegel is saying, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my missing piece. I'm looking for my missing piece. And that's who I am. He says that we tarry with the negative. That we inhabit the absence. That we, as Heidegger will put it, as we're held out into death and nothingness, that we come to authenticity. Um, Our Christianity then gets defined in this understanding as a kind of visual, objectified understanding that the faith that is definitive of Christianity is faith in Christ, a kind of visual, iconic, or idolatrous sort of representation that we come to God in and through Christ in the same way that we come to all-knowing in and through, in John's language, the lust of the eyes. And so what uh, do you recognize the fundamental fallacy in our our definition of faith? First of all, just in the Greek words, pistis Christu is not faith in Christ. That's not what that means in the Greek. So what is the correct understanding of Christian faith, and it's not to say that we that that's ne- always absent in the New Testament, but to say that's the only kind. So, what do we mean uh, when we talk about Christian faith? What is the, this? Is there's nothing more fundamental here, right? Run it down for us, Jake. Yeah. The faith of Christ. Does Christ have faithfulness? Of course he does. Christ is the faithful one. Uh, so, in what is taking place with this, of course, is an, a, a kind of departure from an Old Testament understanding that Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. He is the one who is faithful to the covenant. That's the way that, uh, that, that's the very thing that Christ is working out. And so, if it is simply an objectified faith in Christ, um, then, you know, we can continually behold uh, Christ on the cross and he died so that we don't have to. That's one form of Christianity. Uh, Rather than taking up the cross and obediently duplicating the walk of Christ, which is, I think, the true understanding, that we would walk as he walked, that he has modeled for us faithfulness that is inclusive of, you know, I, I don't know that the two things are necessarily exclusive, but, uh, it is primarily then the idea that Jesus is one whom we are to be clothed in. We are to find ourselves in Christ. You know, the language of the New Testament is that we are the body of Christ. 
And as we put on Christ, then we have the relationship to God that Christ had, Abba, Father, that that relationship then is mediated to us by Christ. Um, If we take Jesus as a kind of objectified, you know, uh, picture of God, uh, the real of the body of Christ is a kind of symbolic, you know, of uh, that, you know, this is in, I think in Catholicism, the crucifix. Jesus is always there dying. In the Mass, he's always dying. But it's also true in Protestantism that, in a sense, um, the ground of the death of Christ is used as a passage not for taking up the cross and following Christ, of embodying Christian faith, but in fact of refusing the body and embodiment and imagining, well, no true vision of God is when is really transcendent beyond the body, beyond this world. Um, that the soul or the symbolic, you know, we only see God then in a spiritual or first order sense. So that it's an ecstatic departure from this world rather than uh, coming to God in and through Christ, in and through this world. So we pass from an auditor, you know, what is the image of Christ that we pursue? Well, it is a, a, an auditory image, right? We don't see Christ. That's why I think icons and are probably not appropriate. Because the icon is already giving us the wrong sort of representation. We have the image of God, uh, not as in Aquinas in the beatific vision. Paul pictures the subject then. That's the subject of desire. That's the subject who, uh, you know, in in effect, I think he's picturing in in chapter 7, he uses the word blepo, sight, throughout. And in chapter Eight, he will shift from that completely. So the way in which we uh, uh, come to Christ is through a d- dynamic process. I'm not sure that that dynamic process ever ends, even in eternity. Because even there in Corinthians it says from glory to glory that it is an ongoing realization of the fullness of who God is. Uh, So his image is not an object of sight. And achieving his likeness is what? Walking as he did. Seeing things through his perspective. And I think that's the role of the Holy Spirit. That as we are submissive and patient and, uh, you know, putting on righteousness, then we're putting on the image of Christ that we're ourselves taking up the cross and bearing that image. So it's not a, you know, the difference between sight and sound is that the visual is always static. I've just, if you've, if you've followed what I've said, I think we need to rework then the meaning of the death of Christ. What is happening on the cross of Christ? Um, and if we, if it is a kind of objectified Christ, 
you really only need the cross, but the cross then is in some way disconnected from the dynamic of the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And so unfortunately I think this is not simply one branch of Christianity has this problem. In a sense, we've all become Thomists, even if we don't necessarily know who that is, or we've, we've become readers of the New Testament, uh, understanding faith primarily as a kind of visual, objectified uh, thing that is accomplished for us in Christ. Um, but resurrection faith, I think, is not a picture of the continually crucified Christ, nor does it tolerate an isolated Christ on the cross. Rather, Christ bids us come and die, and it is only in sharing in his death and suffering that the resurrection life begins, specifically in regard to the story that I've been unfolding for you. What does the death of Christ accomplish? What we've said about the gap, the missing piece, the absence, the you know that that's the controlling thing. I'm not just I, this is not just a trivial thing. Even though we can do everything in this, I think that we're actually describing the human predicament, the human problem. But the human predicament and problem is one that is itself uh, founded on a lie. It's a it's a, we're we are deceived. We're deceived in our very selves. So that the death of Christ then is an exposure of the reality of that gap. It is an overcoming of death. It's a defeat of death is the way it's described in the New Testament. So that uh, death is in fact not the absence, the nothingness is not the controlling factor about who we are. I think this then leads us, this is the entry point into the strange new world of the Bible that Karl Barth talks about. Um, We can't create this, we can't do it ourselves. Uh, I don't believe that we even, that this lie, you know, it's not a trivial thing that's happened to us. Um, But in and through the body of Christ, in and through you know, this has been this alternative understanding has been posited for us in the church and in Scripture. Right? The reality of who Christ is, though, cannot those two categories need to be present for us. What I'm asking you is a basic question here: How do we come into the presence of Christ? Where do we find the presence of Christ? Is it in some sort of ecstatic vision is it in and through the fulfillment of our desires is it crossing the gap is it filling in the missing piece that would be one way of doing your Christianity but what I hope you got so far is that's the the wrong way so the, the question is then how do we come into the presence of Christ So there's the incarnation, the word became flesh, and the incarnation, where is Christ now? 
in the body in the body of Christ, right? In the koinonia, in the fellowship, in the love of Christ that we share. This was our class in Galatians. You know, how do you begin reading a book like Galatians? Is the book of Galatians uh, written to create something that is missing? Or is it written to preserve something they already have? Is the New Testament written to give us something that we do not otherwise have? Or is it written, in fact, to preserve something that has been deposited in the church in the body of Christ? That was a rhetorical question, I hope. It's the second, right? That as we have this fellowship, as we have this love of Christ, and maybe you don't, well then you're not going to create it apart from coming into a fellowship where there is the koinonia, where there is the love of Christ. It's that love that makes the New Testament meaningful. It's that fellowship that makes the New Testament meaningful because that's where we encounter Christ. So Christ is not to be had apart from his body. See, that's the strange thing about all of this. Our disembodied Christianity would also disembody Christ so that we picture our encounter with God as a kind of encounter with God in his spirit and not in the incarnation. The idea is that there are parallel tracks to God. Oh, we can do that Christian stuff with Christ, but that's all dependent upon faith. Or we can do the alternative track in which we behold him in a kind of an immediate apprehension of who God is. And that then in some way is made to be superior to a system that's dependent upon faith because faith is always dealing in the phenomenal world in embodied persons are we capable of being transported out of our bodies to experience the essence of God That may be, you know, that may be, huh? You're on drugs. Yeah, you're doing LSD probably, <laughs> you know. Uh, here's the actress that, yeah, you're. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the history of theology that I gave you in which all these obstacles are thrown up. Human embodiment, the whole human situation is pictured as a kind of obstacle. But wait a minute, that's an obstacle only where the point of pursuit is a fullness that is on the order of a Hindu, Buddhist, you know, fallen, pagan, legalistic notion of fullness. We are creatures. I don't know if anybody's told you yet. Right? We're created. We we are not little pieces of God that was one of my professors at Ozark he said oh yes we're all little pieces of God we all have an innately well that's that's interesting that's just not Christianity we do, do we have innately immortal souls is your soul innately immortal 
God alone is immortal, Paul says to Timothy. We're not immortal. Okay, I'm just going to be the one to say this topic is actually really confusing because obviously there's a start to our existence, but like we go on after this life into life with you know God, heaven, or and on earth or. New, new heaven and new earth. That's what I meant. I'm not to so, do we exist so, eternally? Right. And so, if there are immortal souls, what does immortal souls actually mean? What do people actually mean? Okay, yeah. When you're immortal, you are subject to death. Oh, but the Christ overcame death, so we're not subject to death. How, do, how did he overcome death? By, in some way, uh, trans. Trans, you know, creating a situation in which we are permanently transformed into a spirit being that is no longer subject to the mortal conditions of the body, so that salvation is actually being freed, that we will spring forth from this mortal coil and shed then this condition in which we are subject to death so that we can behold God in his essence, in our true essence, as spirit meets spirit and soul is joined to soul and we can shed this husk of a body forever and ever. Okay. Praise God. So mortal souls... <laughs> <laughs> basically is, is a dualism where the body is disconnected. Yeah. But then... We obviously have a body, and our bodies die, and our bodies are resurrected, but that's not immortal. That we still are embodied, and even the picture in the book of uh, Revelation is that we have access to the tree of life. You know, what was man created for immortality? Yeah, I think so. But that's something very different than to say man is innately immortal. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said, you'll die. So would like the antithesis of an immortal soul be in an embodied soul? I think, yeah, rightly understood. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And soul, there is the wrong, in other words, even the word embodied soul is not getting quite what's happening in the New Testament. A soul in Hebrew thought is not something separate from a body. Right. Yeah, it's the the soul is the animating. So it would just be a soul in the Hebrew understanding, right. rather than our definition of a soul that is compartmentalized. Yeah, the, the Greek notion of a soul is that it's separate from the body, and so the Hebrew is not. The Hebrew is very different. It's a very different. I think Hebrew thought in this is very different from most people's thought because I think the Greek concept is nearly a universal understanding. Right, like mind over matter. Yeah. And with the soul being our breath, when I did my Galatians study, I looked up the word soul and did a little bit of reading on that. So when, like, this, I think it's Stephen when it says that he uh, gave up his soul or something like that, just says that he basically means he stopped breathing. Right, essentially, not this like Gnostic view and like letting a soul leave its body. Right, right. So I'm making the correct connection. Yeah.
Yeah. So how are we saved? We're saved through resurrection. For a Greek, that would be not good news. That'd be bad news. What do you mean resurrection? I want to shed this body. I want to get rid of it. That's Plato's picture. Is the body is the prison house of the soul. It's unfortunately we've inherited that uh, understanding. So, what I'm saying is that this whole kind of Christianity in which the missing piece, the you know, the absolute in some way is posited elsewhere uh, is really you need to get rid of the whole system and recognize a very simple thing that God has come to us. Emmanuel, God with us. That means that God has come to us in an embodied fashion so that we can rightly under apprehend him in his essence in Christ. That's my understanding. That Christ is not a secondary aspect to God, that our apprehension of Christ, our understanding of Christ, or coming to uh, Christ is not some way to fall short of the Father or the essence of God, but in fact in the New Testament is pictured as a participation then in the God Godhead, it's you know in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we actually uh, participate in the Trinity, and that is made a possibility for us, not simply at some future date, but that's the thing that begins to happen to us now. Certainly, there is a now and not yet aspect to our resurrection life. We've begun to live this life, our resurrection life, but it will. Uh, certainly be completed uh, at our bodily resurrection (coughs) I'm saying all this to say that uh, when we come to just reading the Bible to what is the Bible, the authority of the Bible that the Bible then is not Jesus right? we don't worship the Bible we're not Bible alters, or whatever that word might be. But we understand that Scripture then is authoritative for us because, not like a king dictating to his subjects, but more like a roadmap, more like a way of walking, uh, is authoritative for someone who wants to walk as Christ walked. So certainly the Bible is authoritative, but it is an authority uh, that is to be exercised, that we are to put on the practices. In other words, it's not, if it's all about beatific vision and faith in Christ, then the purposes of Scripture are to in some way continually intensify that faith. And we will do with our faith what we do with everything else. Oh, I just there's I just don't quite have enough. If I had enough faith, you know, maybe my my mother would be healed, or maybe my brother could get up out of the wheelchair, or you know, that's the faith healer thing, but it's also a common, you know, my faith is just not very strong. 
Well, how do you strengthen your faith? Do you and strengthen your faith through an intensified interiority? You know, just make it more intense in your head. Do it stronger. Do it better. Pray more. You know. Well, I, I'm afraid that Pietism is just a continuation of the missing piece kind of Christianity. <coughs> how do you do this thing better? We certainly can strengthen our faith, but how do we do it? We do it in practice. That is that faith, once we understand it's not faith in Christ, it's the faith of Christ, and that scripture is given to us as a guide as to how we might carry out the faith of Christ, then we can actually put on the spiritual disciplines that are to, uh, uh, you know, give us you know, uh, improvement in walking as Christ walked. So even that ultimate Frisbee, I suppose, that you need to practice, right? Christianity is no different. There are these practices that we put on. Where do we practice our faith? Well, that's what I think the body of Christ is about. So we've got two kinds of theology that are often, or two ways of reading Scripture that are often pitted against one another. Whoa, it finally ended. A strictly historical, you know, idea that, oh, what's happened is we've we've let those theologians pervert Scripture. We need to get back and, you know, do the grammar and do the historical critical understanding and uh, adhere very closely then to the words, the grammar, the Greek, and get, you know... um, well, I'm not. I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't learn Greek, as hard as it may be, um, or that it's not important to to carry out uh, a historical critical analysis. But that doesn't deliver the meaning to us, right? That doesn't deliver Christ to us. Uh, you know. So the the idea that in some way theology has perverted scripture uh, is almost saying something like that reading the Bible in the church which is what you mean when you talk about a you know uh, a theological uh, you know approach to church history uh, no that's a part that's part of what it means to read in koinonia biblical theology aims to set forth the theology of the Bible in its own terms, concepts, and contexts. That's a good exercise, but you've got to understand that ultimately we're talking about a context that is inclusive of the entire book. That is a theological statement. That is, that the book is a book, that it is a comprehensive book, and it's aimed at a universal predicament you cannot come to that conclusion or that understanding apart from all that theology is doing is that it's bringing together thoughts to form a whole Uh, if you don't have whole thoughts you're you kind of kind of a half you know what do you call that somebody with a half a scatterbrain or a missing piece Uh, so there's nothing wrong. It's not to say that, that uh, there's nothing inherently wrong 
systematic theology seeks to understand the theology of the Bible and part of that is to bring it into conversation with the historical you know with the tradition of the church so scripture is not written to create faith it doesn't create fellowship it doesn't deliver Christ to us only the body of Christ gives us Christ the communities which received the letters making up the New Testament, they were in danger of turning from faith, hope, love. Think of those words, faith, hope. That's not an immediate apprehension. Uh, they were in danger of turning from that to idolatrous notions of fullness. Either in literal idolatry. I think that Judaism also held out a kind of uh, notion that we can have access to God by some other means than the law. So the danger is that we make both Christ and Scripture a kind of objectified idol, uh, holding out the lure of fullness. If I just read it, if I just can picture it... uh, So unless we identify the deception of desire and recognize that hope, faith, and love are a turn from desire, what is the opposite of desire? I would say hope is. That hope is not seen. Desire is seen. Um, Otherwise, we're going to be continually put in pursuit of, of some sort of authenticity that will escape us. Um. I didn't seem to make uh, that. That was sort of my. I'll stop there. Did you have any huge questions or small questions? I'm, I'm circling back to when you talking about the faith of Christ versus the faith in Christ, and and talking about putting on Christ. And, and that's what I'm that's, I always try to. I always put it in terms of preaching. So I always bring it to the topic of preaching. Like, mm-hmm. So. Are you saying that we're looking at a relationship of having the faith of Christ is like he had the faith, like just in general, his whole encompassing of what that faith is, what that's what we're putting on is that faith, and not, not just believing in him, but believing as he did. Or, or, yeah, the question, yeah, that's it. The, the idea the, of the word faith is it can just as easily be translated faithfulness. Um, it's not that Jesus, you know, uh, believed real intensely in God, and we're supposed to believe real intensely in Jesus in some way. It's that Jesus was true. He was faithful to the covenant with God. How how did he do that? Well, through his life, through his his whole uh, life, death, and resurrection, is then that faithfulness brought to completion. And so as we follow Christ, uh, it's not simply that you know we create this thing whole cloth. No, we uh, being found in Christ means that it's not an intensity of belief in our head that we imitate. It's a holistic walk that is inclusive of ethics. See, the problem of faith in you almost don't need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You don't really need the life of Christ because the life of Christ becomes inconsequential to that intense belief in your head. Oh, yeah, I got it. 
So, but if the Sermon on the Mount, do we do that? No. <laughs> we tend to separate it out. We tend to say, oh, well, that's pre-Christian. Obviously, we can't do that. Jesus could do that because he was God, but we're not. No, I think we're really called to do the Sermon on the Mount. We're really called to do what Jesus did in the New Testament. So what it does, it, it, it brings the Gospels together with the rest of the New Testament. The life of Christ is a demonstration of the faithfulness that we are to have. Yeah. But the problem then becomes people feel like Jake said this time, he's like, what do you think would happen if people read what Jesus said like they read the epistles? When you were working on your Shannon and Mount Sermon, you're not going to. Oh, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But. Uh, that's an, yeah, no, I think the uh, glad you came again. Um, yeah, anybody that has to go anytime. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, that's impossible, isn't it? Turning your other, turning the other cheek, you know, the whole loving your enemies. The, who, could, who could possibly do that? Um, well, no, I think we can. But I do think that it is an impossibility apart from the incarnation that we have that is a continuing incarnation in the church that being having access to Christ that we have in the body of Christ <coughs> enables us to do that kind of forgiveness, peaceableness, uh, you know, love of enemies. I don't think that I'm up to it otherwise. And I suspect you're not either. Because if it wasn't for you people, I'd kill somebody. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, if you guys will, if you have my back, you know, maybe I won't, I won't go shoot somebody. Um, that, that, no, I, I, in some way, that, that, that really is what our friends do for us, right? That, uh, that it, uh, the training in righteousness that we take on is no, we, we learn to we learn what to do with all that anger, and we learn we really do have a community that is uh, a different mode of politics and ec- economics. I've been reading about the you know apocalypse. Um, <laughs> the zombie book, you know, yeah. Um, you know, so all the shows you watch on TV, they're all apocalyptic. But is that the nature of Christian apocalypse? I think Christian apocalypse is now. But that's how radical the church... You know, the one thing you never see in those shows, the zombies are coming, brains, brains, you know. But they never uh, escape a kind of capitalistic... You know, it's always, nobody can imagine a world in which a liberal, democratic, capitalistic society is not the case. Now, that would be apocalyptic. But I think that's precisely the apocalypse that is the church. We're no longer controlled by the economies, the logic, the understanding that is simply the form of thought outside of the church. Now, I'm not saying it's easy or that we can't, you know, that we, we really do have to work at this thing. 
But I think that's the point, is that to be of a different culture, a different society, that logic that is just sort of in the gut kind of logic is undone in the church. (laughs) How's the book then? I just started it. This was this is a book by Scott Lomey. Unfortunately, I'm prepared to be disappointed. Scott warned me. He said, well, you know, because what I would do with this is not what they're going to do. What I would do with this is say, look at this, all this apocalyptic stuff. Um, What it fails to apparently do, I haven't read it all, but uh, is to what I just said, is that it does not picture a Christian apocalypse. As Christians, the world that surrounds us is one that is continually fading away if you can't see that then you're you know that's the true apocalypse that rome has fallen that these societies that seem to just define everything yeah but they melt away you know over time we may not see it because our lives may not endure that long but look back on and take a perspective on history that the kingdoms that have fallen you know, so that we are in a continual apocalypse, but what makes it an apocalypse is that we've joined a kingdom that is enduring. The church endures while the kingdoms of this world are continually fading away. So I'm not going to vote for, well, that, 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 that to imagine that our salvation is in the politics and principalities and powers of this world is just a false Christianity. I probably won't vote for anybody, but... <laughs> make Central Grid again? Yes, make Central Grid. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That was good. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, make the restoration movement great again. Well, how do you do that? You restore... Can you restore... I, I'm I'm a thorough restorationist. I believe in the restoration movement, so don't get me wrong here. But I think the idea that in some way we continue, in other words, it's the same thing, the missing piece. We're trying to restore it. We never, somebody messes us up. Them liberals or them, you know, whoever. Well, no, we, we, I think we, we restore New Testament Christianity as soon as we start uh, fellowshipping you know, in on the basis of Christian love and agape, and that every place that experiences that sort of koinonia, restoration has occurred. It's not a hard thing, it's a simple thing. But you've got to stop positing the gap, the obstacles, that as if they are in some way preventing us from the essence of things, because that essence that we're positing is a false essence. I don't know, is that making sense or not? Glad you could come, Caitlin. All right.